was doing a lot of undercover work. And I ended up purchasing 10 kilos of cocaine on the street as an undercover officer. I think it still is the largest hand-to-hand -hand undercover drug deal in Aurora's history. So every narcotics deal that I went to, I was always nervous. I had a lot of training um, and a lot of experience as I did more undercover deals, but the nervousness of it kept me on my toes and I think kept me safe because I was a little bit more alert of my surroundings. I think law enforcement in general, you get a little bit of cynicism. I think it gets a little bit more intense when you enter the undercover world. There's a lot of bad and negativity that you just constantly see on a daily basis. I always viewed people probably at their worst. I grew up in a private Catholic school as a little kid, got married young, knew about God, knew there's a God, but really never was involved in the church. My youngest son, Brandon, I remember he asked his mom one day, hey, why don't we go to church? And we're like, you wanna go to church? We'll go. So we started going to Chapel Street. I think I was just at that point, just attending church. I, I knew there's a God, I believed in God. It turned for me very seriously about three years ago. Our family went through a very personal trying time where I think it tested all our faith. That's when I made the decision of completely surrendering to God and saying, I am no longer in control. Whatever you have to do, you have to do, and I have to accept that. It wasn't an easy road. It took a lot of prayer, a lot of crying, a lot of just humbling yourself and saying, whatever has to happen, you're in control, I am not. Well, it wasn't easy getting from not trusting anybody, doing it all myself, to trusting God completely. Those are real and are still real struggles for me, is trusting people because of the way I was trained in the police world and the narcotics world. So we went on a hiking trip with my youngest son and we were only supposed to hike a few miles. We ended up hiking a total of 10 miles, got lost, it was starting to get dark. We get to the end of the trail and we're looking for some help because we are exhausted. We're beat down, we got no water, no food. And I go into my police mode because I need help now. And I'm scanning the parking lot, who can help me? And there was a gentleman that I looked at that right away I'm like, eh, I'm not even gonna ask him, right? Because I already had a little checklist in my head of things that he didn't check off. Well, that gentleman walks over eventually to where we're at and he says, looks like you need some help. My name is Elijah, my wife's name is Mary. And I just start inside laughing and I looked up and I'm like, you have a sense of humor, God. Because not only do you send help, it's gotta be somebody named Mary and Elijah. <laughs> he was our ticket out of the problem. He took us where we needed to go to, and yet I didn't wanna ask him for help because of the checklist I was going through from my prior experiences. Shame on me. But that's when I saw God working. He's telling me, this is what you're praying for. 
I put somebody to help you that doesn't fit the mold you're looking for because of your cynicism. And just so you know, this is an open door. His name is going to be Elijah, so you don't have any questions. <laughs> Knowing what I was working for and praying for and struggling with, I'm 100% sure this was God answered one of my prayers saying, keep doing what you're doing because you have to trust me. You have to be obedient. So I retired after 26 years of service. I'm really enjoying my, my uh, retirement, not only because I, I get to spend time with my family and see them grow, but this amazing journey that I'm going through myself with God. I have to wake up every morning, just humble myself and say, what am I gonna do for you today? I think what God is really trying to teach me now is that I need to continue to walk in faith even though I cannot see it. And that's my favorite verse in 2 Corinthians. Over the last six years or so, I've gotten to know Alfredo and his wife Elsie and, and just really appreciate him and his family, their story. I, I appreciate his willingness to um, share that. And I find it so fascinating the way that the very thing that whether it's a just sort of personality, upbringing, but also then just his training, right? The, the very thing that that helped him sort of be good at his job helped him to do that well is also the thing that was like inhibiting from his full discipleship to Jesus. Like this ability to just sort of like fully take on and trust and be willing to say, okay, Lord, like, I don't know the end result of this. I don't know where this is going, but I'm going to, I'm going to step out in this. And isn't that the case for so many of us? Um, and, and Alfredo is, is you'll see him around here sometimes with his family. He serves as a part of our security team here and is just um, really a great guy. And so if you see him, make sure you introduce yourself and, and tell him how much you appreciated him sharing his story. But I was reflecting on what he said in there and, and specifically on that, that element because he just highlights this, this aspect, this key component that is critical in our discussion, our ongoing discussion of apprenticeship to Jesus. It's critical in our discipleship to him. And that is this aspect of trust. Because let's, let's be honest with each, with each other for a second, right? Apprenticeship to Jesus is not always the path of least resistance, right? Frequently, it feels like the path of most resistance. Sometimes the things that Jesus asks of us, the things that he teaches us, they're hard to do. It's difficult. It's certainly, from a, from a human perspective, right, it certainly frequently feels counterintuitive. And when we look at kind of the world around us, it feels to us to be very countercultural. So when Jesus in Luke chapter 9, and, and Pastor Joe talked about this a couple of weeks ago, when he says something to his disciples like this, he says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever wants to lose his life because of me will save it. Now, just take that statement in and of itself. Does that sound right to you? 
Like if we, if we were to just hear somebody else out there say that, there would be some alarms going off in our head. So there has to be this, this deep level of trust in order for us to act in the confidence that what Jesus is telling us, what he's given to us, that it's true. That we can, in fact, trust him. In the Gospel of, of John, there's a moment when Jesus, again, is, he's, he's laying out to his disciples his vision of the kingdom and their part that they're playing. And, and much like we just talked about, there's some who are following him at this moment who are like, this is... This is too much. And so some of them start to leave. They walk away from Jesus. In fact, they specifically said in John chapter 6, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, in a conversation with those that remained, said to his disciples, are you going to leave as well? And Peter's answer is compelling and it's the conviction that informs our trust peter's answer to jesus when he asked his disciples are, are you going to leave as well peter says lord to who will we go you have the words of eternal life we have come to believe and know that you are the holy one of god we we we've we're convinced, we're convicted that you have the words that lead us. Where else are we going to go? What else is out there for us? And so as we continue in this conversation about apprenticing to Jesus and discipleship and walking in the way of, of Jesus, here's the conviction that has to inform our conversation, is that he has the way, the words of eternal life. That where he is taking us, is towards life and again as much as it might feel counterintuitive to us at times what is in the opposite direction of him and what he's leading us is actually away from life towards things that harm us that are not good for us towards death this brings us to the passage that we're going to look at today we're continuing to study this uh um time in Jesus's life, the events surrounding the Lord's Supper, where he is teaching his disciples once again what, what life in his kingdom, what life according to the way of Jesus looks like. So he has been reshaping their understanding, reforming the way they view the world through this kingdom of God lens. And he's going to do that, and he's going to do so in this conversation around greatness what does it mean to be great so this is we're gonna we've been hanging out in the gospel of john we're gonna flip over actually to luke's gospel and his account of the last supper and we're gonna pick up the conversation here we're gonna kind of bounce a little bit back and forth between john and luke this morning and uh this is in luke 22 verse 24 then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving, for who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? 
Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus now is this, is he's laying out this kingdom vision. He's saying, in my kingdom, the way of greatness, how you understand what it means to be great, is the way of serving. Are any of you here uh, fans of the Discovery Channel show, Dirty Jobs? Anybody ever watch that, Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe? I, I, I don't know what it is about that show, but I, I find it just like strangely addictive. And, um, but if you don't know, speaking of apprenticeship, what Mike Rowe does is he will apprentice with people whose professions are in careers where their work is some of the most difficult and dangerous and disgusting jobs in, in the United States. And he does their jobs alongside of them and he gets in the muck and, and what he does is he has this way of kind of taking these things that most of us would look at and say, I don't wanna do that or, right, or that's sort of below me kind of thing. And he has this way of elevating it up and creating an immense amount of gratitude because his point is sort of like if these people, these men and women didn't do their jobs, we would not be able to do our jobs. Like the, 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 the society as we experience it would, would stop functioning. Literally, like our highways would become impassable if somebody wasn't out there moving roadkill off the road. You know, we don't think about it. We don't appreciate it most of the time, but he's He's changing this narrative and saying, we really, we really need to understand this differently. See, Jesus here, he's, he's doing the same thing. He's flipping this narrative. He's changing the way we understand and define what greatness is. He's highlighting and he's, he's elevating what it means to serve. And he does so by, by pointing to those in the culture, those in their world who were the most humble, the, the, the most sort of overlooked. And so he begins this conversation and he starts by describing what we know. He, he identifies kind of the water that we swim in or what I'm calling the way of this world. Look again in, in verse 24 and 25. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatness. But he said to them, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. And so the context here is important. Jesus has just served to his disciples the Passover meal. He's revealed to them that there is one among them who is ultimately going to betray him. And the disciples, in response to that, they begin to have this conversation, this debate really that was of them among them who was who was the worst among them like who could possibly do this thing that that jesus has now said is going to happen so if you you go back just a couple verses 22 and 23 for the son of man will go away as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed so they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Who is the worst among us? The very next verse, verse 24. Then a dispute also rose among them about who should be considered the greatness, the greatest. Now there's two ways to kind of interpret this here. One is that the disciples are just oblivious, right? Right? 
And, and if that is the case, and there is precedent to suggest that it, it might be, this is not the first time Jesus has had this conversation with his disciples. It, it, like previously, right, they've, they've gotten their moms involved about like, hey, can you go talk to Jesus and put in a good word for me? And, and so Jesus has addressed this issue with his disciples before, but when you read it in the context of, of this whole conversation, what is unfolding here? That, if that is the case, it almost feels like, inappropriate right like like read the room guys like jesus has just said some really meaningful powerful difficult things and then you kind of descend into this debate about who's best among you like i i can self-identify as somebody who can be pretty oblivious right i i have walked into conversations like i live in a house full of daughters right I, I, there's multiple times I walk in, I have no idea what's going on, right? So I can be sympathetic to not being able to like read the room. And yet I like to think that in this moment, maybe I would have been capable of perceiving that this is not helpful, right? But I, I, I probably wouldn't have. But there's also a second possibility here. And that is that the disciples are actually being a little bit practical, like this conversation is, is actually pragmatic, that maybe the disciples have heard Jesus say enough times recently that he is going away, that he's leaving them. Maybe they're starting to feel the weight of, of their rabbi saying this. Maybe they're starting to ask themselves the question, what comes next? Like who, who is going to lead us? Who is qualified? Our, our rabbi who we have given our lives to follow, whose teaching we define as the words of life, keeps saying that he's leaving, so who's going to be in charge? What's next for us? So this conversation begins to unfold where the disciples are maybe uh, uh, presenting their qualifications. They're, they're, they're making their candidacy. Maybe they're sort of dividing up into segments and kind of putting their weight behind the person that that they support or that they think is most qualified, right? And this is not unfamiliar to us. We understand this. This is the way the world works, right? Who is looking forward to the election being over just so you don't have to see these commercials anymore? Anybody? Right, like we, we, we never see a, a political debate where one person says, you know, I really, I respect my opponent. I value their opinion. I disagree about the policies that they think are going to resolve this problem. And I would like to suggest this alternative option, right? Like, we, that never happens. In, in our system, in, in every system across the world, in order to elevate self, in order to make myself viable, right, I've got to demonize the person across the table from me. That's the way the world works. And Jesus is identifying it here. This is the way of the world. The world views greatness in terms of financial capital and political power and your ability to manipulate it for the benefit of an advancement of self. Like, what do I have and how does it benefit me? So verse 25, right? Jesus says to his disciples, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. Now Jesus is, here he is sort of um, calling out some irony, 
that exists. I mean, he's exposing irony in the world's understanding of, of greatness. These, these Gentile, the Roman authorities that they were under, right, government officials and politicians had a title that they used of themselves. It was this Greek word. It's translated here as benefactors. It, it uh, literally means um, those who do good, like do-gooders. And again, like this is their title for themselves. We are the ones who do good for you. Shouldn't you be so grateful for us? So there's no arguing like that these were the people who had power and influence and authority. That's obvious to everybody. The irony is that they gave them this they gave themselves, applied this title to themselves called benefactors. When the benefit of their power and influence and authority, it fell primarily to them and to those like them, to their, to their tribe. Not surprisingly then, the, the, the result of their greatness, as it was experienced by those who were under their authority, and under their power, that oftentimes was experienced as injustice, oppression, manipulation, abuse, right? Greatness in this system, it views position and power as an opportunity to advance the self at the cost of you. That's the way the world views greatness. That's how it identifies it. And then we'll call ourselves benefactors. You guys should really be grateful, right? For all the good that we do. Jesus says this is how the world works. It plays out in national and local politics, but it also plays out in our workplaces, our social groups, our neighborhoods, our homes. To be great according to the world is to have power that benefits me. And so as easy as it is to look out there, to look outside and to see the brokenness that exists out there, to expose the corruption on display in others, let's be clear, this finds its source in each of us, in the, in the human heart. It's not, a, it's not an out there problem, it's an in here problem. Several years ago, I, a couple years ago, I had a friend give me a copy of... Um, Martin Luther King's letters from a Birmingham jail. And if you've ever read it, it's a fascinating uh, piece of literature and compelling, and I, I encourage you to read it. Um, but there's a, Martin Luther King, in that letter, he, he highlights the process that he and um, those who are partnering with him will go through before they would go into a community in order to protest injustice. And he said there's a four-step process. First, there's the collection of the facts. Do we understand what's really going on? The second part of the process is what he calls negotiation. Maybe he's like, hey, if we can just identify the issue and bring it to the table, maybe there's a way to resolve this that is, doesn't re require any kind of protest or sit-in or anything like that. Before the fourth step, which is direct action, he said the third step, was self-purification. 
meaning that they understood that he believed that in order before we go address this problem out there, we got to address the problem in here. Right, that the same things that we're confronting in the world around us exist in me. And if we don't come into a space of self-purification, right, we're, we are going to become a part of the problem instead of resolving it. And I found that fascinating. See, here Jesus, as he witnesses this conversation, this debate that's unfolding by his disciples, he recognizes the thinking and he exposes it. And he says, this is the way the world defines greatness. And he looks his disciples in the eyes and he says, it is not to be like that among you. That, this definition of greatness that our world operates in, that's not the way it is to be among the followers of Jesus. And then he begins to describe for him the way of the kingdom. What does it look like according to the way of the kingdom um i don't know if you've had like something in life where you had kind of a, a basic form or understanding of something and then later on life kind of like your eyes are opened and you experiencing the same thing very differently and now kind of the way you view it has totally changed anybody had can relate like for me that um was pizza um like i grew up in Ohio, you've heard me talk about how much I love Ohio, and I love going back there. My family, Mitch, my family is still back there. Um, but we are pizza. I, like, I used to think Pizza Hut was like, okay, we're stepping it up tonight. Like, we're getting the good stuff, right? And then in 94, I moved to Chicago. I live in downtown Chicago, go to Moody Bible Institute. My friends are like, we're going to go get pizza and we end up place like Giordano's or Lou Malnati's or Gino's and I'm just like like my eyes are open and my world is expanded and I have a whole new definition of what pizza is and now when I go back to Ohio like when it's like a, a Saturday night and like let's let's order some pizza I'm a total snob about it I'm like, this, you guys, this is not pizza. You don't even know what you're eating here. Like, you, if you want to get some cardboard with a little bit of sauce on it, that's one thing. But don't call this pizza, right? Like, look at what Jesus does here. He takes the definition of what we know, the thing that we know, and he's going to completely transform our understanding of it. Verse 26, it's not to be like that among you. We know what it is. Right? We know the way the world operates. There is a, it is the gravitational pull of every human heart apart from the transformative work of the gospel and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And it is not the way of Jesus. And so he says, on the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest. And whoever leads like, like the one serving. So Jesus redefines our understanding of what it means to be great. And he says, in order to be great, you have to see it's expressed in humility. And it works itself out in service. Now, every society, every culture has a hierarchy that it operates in. Of course, Jesus, the culture Jesus lived in was, was no different. In fact, it was the, the tiers of their hierarchy were far more defined and they were obvious to all. And on the low end of that spectrum, right, were children and, and servants. And then Jesus says, but hear me, 
if you want to be great, if you want to understand what it means to be great in my kingdom, I'll tell you what it looks like. View your power and your position with the humility of a child. View your authority and your resources and your leadership. View that as a means to serve others. This is what it means to be great in my kingdom. Again, back in Philippians 2. Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. This is the way of the kingdom. And Matthew's gospel says that Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. So hear me on this, because this is important. It does not mean the absence of authority and resource and power and influence. What Jesus defines as greatness is the application of it. It's the application of those things for the benefit of others. Kingdom greatness, it, it, it seeks to elevate others. It advocates for the weak and the oppressed. It defends the defenseless. It comes to the rescue of the vulnerable. Right? Contrary to the way the world works, that defines greatness as the ability to spend others in order to advance self, kingdom greatness flips the narrative and it spins the self in order to advance others. And how do we know this? Where have we experienced this? This is what Jesus has done for us. He is the true benefactor, right? The one who has done good on our behalf. He is the one, again, back in, in Philippians 2. He is the one who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. By, a, by assuming the form of a servant, by taking on likeness of humanity. This, then, is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. And so in this, this third part of this conversation, we think about what does the way of Jesus look like to us? He gives this, this metaphor, this uh, illustration, if you will, that's taking place, unfolding right in front of them. This is verse 27. Jesus says, for who is greater? The one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? Like, right? Don't we all know that, would you rather be the person sitting at the table being served or would you rather be the person serving at the table? Right? It's obvious to all, you'd rather be the person sitting at the table. That's, that's what it means to be great. But then Jesus flips the narrative, but I am among you as the one who serves. And again, what is the context here? What, where are they at? Jesus has just served his disciples the Passover meal. He's handed them the bread that, and said, this is my body, and he's given them the cup, and he says, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. He is the one serving. He inverts what it means to be great. And he says, you've seen this. You've you've experienced this in me. What I have done for you. 
I, I highlighted, or I, I briefly talked about this last week, but the Gospel of John records an aspect of this dinner that isn't highlighted in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And um, there's this moment when, when Jesus models this in, in a profound and, and powerful way, and it's when He washes His disciples' feet. And this is in John 13, verse 1. He says, before the, the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put, put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. And Jesus knew that the Father had given him, given everything into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, he tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that he tied around them. And now jump down to verse 12. And when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? Right? You call me teacher and Lord. You, you say that you are here as my disciples or my apprentices. And you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. I think it can be easy, like in a, in a culture that does not practice something like foot washing as a regular part of our experience. It can, it can be easy to hear this and almost kind of sanitize it a bit. But let's be clear for a moment. Like make no mistake, like Jesus humiliates himself. He undresses and ties a towel around his waist. He, he is, the disciples are, are, you know, these aren't the kind of tables that you and I would, they would be low tables where you would sit on the floor. So Jesus is likely crawling on his hands and knees from one disciple to the next as he washes each of their feet. And then he says to them, what I have done for you, you should do for each other. It's interesting that when we read the rest of the New Testament and you hear the story of the early church as it's recorded in, in the New Testament, we don't see other instances of foot washing practiced in, in the church. We see the Lord's table frequently. like That comes up oftentimes, but we don't see this practice. That's Historically, we, we see it practiced in, later on in, in versions of the church, but not, not in the New Testament. And here's the point I want to land with this morning. Is I think that Jesus' definition of greatness that's marked by humility and service, we are not supposed to understand this as a mere gesture. We are supposed to understand it as a posture. A posture that we live with. We live with in response to an understanding that he lived it for us 
Right, so my objective this morning is, is we don't have some event that we're all going to sign up for and all go serve together. I don't have a list of unmet needs that, that I'm going to try to get filled this morning by getting people to respond and service. Those are all valuable applications, and I don't mean to belittle that. But rather, I would like us to consider the model of Jesus, this posture of humility and service that defined his life as a way of life for us. And so the question then becomes, what does, for you and I, what does kingdom greatness look like in our neighborhood? Students, what does kingdom greatness look like in your schools? What does it look like in the hallway of your school? In your in your cafeterias? What does it look like to adopt the posture of humility and service that's been modeled to us by Jesus in our workplaces, in our homes, with our friends, and with my spouse, and to my kids? What, what does this look like? Because this, I believe, is what Jesus is defining as, as greatness. He redefines what it means to be great, and he has modeled it to us. And he says to those who desire to apprentice under him, to to be discipled by him, he says, whoever is greatest among you should be like the youngest. And whoever wants to lead, like the one serving. This is the way of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to just see the way that you reshape our entire understanding and thinking, the way you reform us and transform us. And Jesus, when I have, when I have operated according to the world's definition of greatness, would you forgive me? Or when I have looked out and I have seen others as, a, as something to be spent in order to advance myself, would you forgive me? And Jesus, for, for making yourself nothing, for entering, emptying yourself, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, thank you. Redefine, reshape my understanding of what it means to be great. And help me to adapt your posture of humility and service and the way that I view the world around me. That we might be great in your kingdom as we serve each other and as we serve the world around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, as we conclude our, our time together this morning, as we sang that last song, like my heart was just full of gratitude, in part because I think one of the ways that I have experienced kingdom greatness most profoundly, the way I've seen it, has been among you. It's been people who have showed up when, when we needed people to show up, people who serve faithfully and give of themselves. And I know, you know, none of us here are perfect. I understand that, but I've, I've experienced, I've seen what Jesus talked about, lived out 
and, and groups of people who have surrendered their lives, as Alfredo said, to, to the authority of Jesus. And so thank you. As we continue to seek to live in this posture, defined by humility and modeled by service, I think our world will look and say there's, there's a whole new definition of greatness. Thank you for being a part of that. As we conclude our time this morning, if we can pray with you, it's a privilege, it's an honor to do that. If you came prepared to give this morning, our generosity boxes are, are by our side doors. And if you are new with us, please stop by the welcome desk. We'd love to connect with you and say hi and, and leave you with a gift this morning. Now receive this morning's benediction. Go now in the name of Jesus, who spent himself in order to redeem us. May we follow in his example. May we adapt kingdom greatness. Amen.